You're listening to Under One Roof, a Covenant House Vancouver production. Under One Roof is your opportunity to hear conversations with subject matter experts on a variety of social justice and public policy issues. Covenant House Vancouver is dedicated to serving all youth with absolute respect and unconditional love, helping youth experiencing homelessness and protecting and safeguarding all youth in need. And now, Under One Roof. Welcome to Under One Roof, a Covenant House Vancouver production. My name is Mark Savard, and I'll be your host for today's episode. This month, we are joined by Tim Richter, President and CEO of the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness and Campaign Chair of Vote Housing, a national, nonpartisan initiative designed to shape public policy leading up to the next federal election. Welcome to the program, Tim. Hi, great to be here. Tim, I'd like to start off by talking about the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. In addition to being its president and CEO, you're also its founder. Could you tell listeners a little bit about how the Alliance came to be and how it's evolved since its inception? Well, uh, to, make a, to make a long story short, I guess we were founded in uh, 2012 to build and lead a movement of communities and organizations and individuals working together uh, to end homelessness. And we, the, the Alliance was born out of some of the success uh, we were seeing in Alberta at, uh, at preventing and, and reducing homelessness. I'm based in Calgary, and uh, prior to this was uh, leading the Calgary Homeless Foundation. And we began to see, you know, in, you know, 2009, 10, 11, kind of 12 time frame, we were starting to get success. Um, but we realized a couple of things. Once, as soon as we started making progress and getting some success, everybody wanted to know how we were doing it. So we wanted to, you know, make sure uh, to share that it's also a realization that ending homelessness requires all three levels of government. And even, you know, we could end homelessness theoretically in Calgary or Medicine Hat or other places, but to truly end homelessness, it would, it would take ending it across the country as well, because there's movements of people, movements of people around. And uh, so it's, it's that kind of realization and a kind of an understanding from both things that, you know, people were really craving a different approach. We're looking for things that worked. Uh, if you remember you know, around that time, and I think to, to even today still, uh, there's a lot of people who, there's a lot of communities who are struggling with homelessness and trying to find, uh, trying to find solutions. And, um, you know, there's hope in what works, I think, is Obama's line. So people were, I think, really keen for something like the Alliance to, to come along. So since then, uh, you know, we've evolved quite a bit and we're learning every day and our, our approach to ending homelessness uh, changes as we learn and improve, but it's really focused on a few main things. One is our national conference that happens every year, beginning in November. This November it's in Toronto, uh, 2nd to 4th, uh, coming up very, very soon. Um, that brings together about 1,000, 1,500 people uh, from across the country that are wanting to learn more about ending homelessness and accelerating their efforts at home. We have uh, Built for Zero Canada that's working with 39 cities across the country committed to any chronic and or veteran homelessness. And it's kind of a mm. Built for Zero helps communities build kind of that local operating system for ending homelessness. 
We have our training and technical assistance program, as uh, folks at Covenant House understand as well as anybody else, or perhaps more than anybody else. You need a, a skilled workforce, and you need uh, that. There's a lot of technical skills that come with ending homelessness, and there, our training and technical assistance program helps with that. Uh, and we also do a lot of public policy advocacy, and that's kind of where uh, the vote housing piece uh, piece comes in. But that's that's kind of the alliance in a nutshell. Yeah, I was going to make a comment. I, I saw on the, the Alliance website, it looked like there's over a hundred. Is, would it be, is this correct that it's over 150 partners in the Alliance, including? Oh, there's, yeah, there's there's more than that. It grows every day where, you know, we there's thousands of organizations in the in the sector. We, we have hundreds come to the conference every year. And, you know, as you said, there's probably 400 signed up as partners in different ways and continuing to build that, build that movement. And, you know, we engage... So we're active working in probably 70 cities around the country in varying ways. Um, we work with most reaching home communities. We have, uh, you know, like I said, 1,500 people come every year to the conference, and that has organizations from across the country. We also work with about seven, soon to be nine, allied networks. And those are groups of people that work on different aspects of, of homelessness, from the right to housing to shelter transformation, rural and remote homelessness, and healthcare and homelessness. So it's, it's, a, it's a broad and growing movement, I would say. Yeah, and that reminds me, uh, in one of the vision statements, uh, I love the fact that uh, you have a bias for action, action vision, which is action over perfection. That really jumped out at me when I read that. Well, and, you know, our, our vision statement is actually an interesting mix of uh, vision and mindset. And part of what we want to do as an organization is model some of those mindsets uh, that that we seem to be successful in ending homelessness, and that's that's one of them, you know, action over perfection, mm -hmm. which uh, kind of uh, tells me that it can be done, that it can there's uh, it can be eliminated, and that's what mm -hmm. immediately jumped to mind when I read that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, as we both know, homelessness has an impact on every community in Canada. And when you look nationally, coast to coast, how would you describe the current state of homelessness? Well, um, you know, homelessness has followed us this kind of lethal trajectory for over, like modern mass homelessness as we see it today hasn't always existed, right? And uh, I think I'm getting into one of the questions you might ask later, but, uh, you know, we're blending a couple together, but I think, you know, it, Modern mass homelessness, like we see it today, hasn't always existed. It really began in the 80s, accelerated in the 1990s. So I'm based in Calgary, as I mentioned. And Calgary is one of the oldest point-in-time counts of homelessness in, in the country. Uh, and the first one was in 1992, and that one counted about 400 people on one day in May, I think. Uh, fast forward to 2008, that number is over 4,000. And that is, and that is really down to a couple of really uh, critical changes in that the federal government got out of investing in affordable housing, like began to reduce that funding in the 80s, cut it almost entirely in the 90s, and also cut income supports or transfers to provinces that funded healthcare and welfare and those things. And so, you were, we found that the government was cutting affordable housing investment, but also cutting income support and homelessness is a product of housing and income and housing cost and poverty and the policy, really. Uh, so that created modern mass homelessness in Canada. But what 
what we see today that's really interesting is you see an acceleration. So COVID um, really battered the homeless system. Covenant House, again, will know this as well or better than anybody else, but um, it just, the COVID kicked the daylights out of the system and out of the workers in the system. Uh, and I can't, I, and I can't make that point too strongly, right? It has been really awful for people experiencing homelessness uh, who were five times more likely to die from COVID. Um, we're 10 times more likely to get contracted, 21 times more likely to require intensive care, and five times more likely to die. And so that really disrupted the system. It battered and abused the, the staff in the system who uh, had to worry about their own families, but also had to work uh, to save lives and were experiencing death uh, on a daily basis, right? And that's really, really hard to do, uh, hard to take. And, and it really stretched the frontline services and organizations who had to scramble to effectively become part of the healthier system without support from the healthier system. Uh, without the training or capacity and scrambled to do it and uh, did some pretty heroic work and saved a lot of lives. But fast forward to today, you see encampments rising across the country, partly a product of COVID and the impact of COVID on homeless populations in the homeless system, uh, which is providing some really unique challenges to communities and governments and agencies. But the other thing we see, and this is tied, I think, more to the cost of living crisis, but the but inflation is driving new homelessness in the country at a really significant rate. We don't know the numbers, but we know almost certainly there is a inflation driven wave of new homelessness happening in Canada. A couple of data points for you. One is there was a, a study that was released by Ron Nebone from the University of Calgary School of Policy Studies about the impact of inflation on homelessness and, and food bank use and poverty. And one of the things he said, for every 1% increase in inflation, there is a 2% increase in the prevalence of homelessness. Mm -hmm. Right? And so we're seeing... and. We know that inflation impacts low-income households more dramatically than anyone else because low-income households spend their spend their money on on essentials, housing, food, fuel. Those are the things that have gone up the most. Um, most our inflation rate is measured on um, CPI, which is a consumer price index, which is a middle-class basket of goods. For a low-income household, the real inflation rate is more than twenty percent easily. Right, when you take into account food and fuel, and that's driving people into homelessness. The other data point we have, this goes back to the pandemic, but we had uh, we looked at 19 cities who had quality data on chronic homelessness in February 2020, compared that to March 2022. And we saw in that intervening period in those 19 cities, uh, homelessness had gone up in 70% of those cities. And the average increase had been 60%. That's just in chronic homelessness. 60%. 60%. And that's accelerating now with cost of living. Mm -hmm. So we know it's happening. And we see that playing out in communities. And it's going to require really urgent response from senior levels of government. Wow. That's incredible numbers. And uh, 
I, I wanted to, to actually like going from national to, uh, to uh, more local. And are, are there different demographics you would say are dis disproportionately impacted by homelessness? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the, the, the populations disproportionately impacted by homelessness are also those disproportionately impacted by housing need. And the reasons are, I think, pretty obvious. But if you look at housing need and homelessness, uh, one of the most striking aspects of homelessness in Canada is the impact on urban Indigenous, or on Indigenous people. Now, this is a product of both colonization Right, and the continued uh, the continued impact of colonization, which is a still you know alive and well in in the country, and and it's still impacting people. Plus, obviously, residential schools that's played out in a uh, in a dramatic overrepresentation of Indigenous people in Canada. Uh, I saw one stat uh, not long ago from the federal government that's, that looked at shelter data and said, if you're an Indigenous man, you are ten times more likely to end up in a homeless shelter than a non-Indigenous man. If you're an Indigenous woman, you're 15 times more likely to end up in a homeless shelter than non-Indigenous woman. So dramatic overrepresentation. But you also see, um, you know, uh, increasing numbers of seniors. So we know seniors are disproportionately in, in homelessness as well as uh, in uh, core housing need, and especially sort of locked in long-term core housing need. Um, and I think I, I think there's one, and we obviously youth. I mean, youth experience homelessness much differently. Uh, often, it's unseen until they get a bit older, right? Um, but what uh, one area in particular that I just don't think we appreciate or don't uh, quantify in a meaningful way is homelessness for women. Homelessness for women is very different than it is for most areas. Often it's tied up in domestic violence, but not just domestic violence. Virtually all women who've experienced homelessness or who are have experienced violence of some sort. Um, but what we think of as family homelessness, uh, I tend to think of as homelessness for women, uh, but they have their children with them. Because it's more, most often single parent, not always, obviously, there's all, there's long parent households that are led by dads and there's others, you know, in the LGBTQ2S community and others. But uh, I think um, homelessness uh, for women looks like family homelessness, looks like domestic violence, looks like human trafficking, looks like youth homelessness. Uh, and it's very challenging and it's much bigger than, it's much bigger and more prevalent than is measured. Um, and I, the other aspect of that, I think, is if we, the long-term solution to homelessness, I think, lies in addressing homelessness and housing need for women. Because most people who are chronically homeless, when you when you talk to them and meet with them, in particular, and a lot of other people who experience homelessness, their their first experience with housing instability and housing need began as as children, usually with their moms. And uh, that begins kind of a lifetime of housing precarity. And I think the long, uh, long-term solution is really attending to housing need and homelessness for women. Yeah, that's an interesting point, and I can speak to from Covenant House's perspective that uh, we uh, we made a change to our service delivery model in our crisis program eight years ago, uh, addressing that need where we separated uh, uh, the male and female identified programs, and we saw. 
it wasn't over a long period we saw a 200% increase in the number of young women that we were working with or female-identified youth. So that was a massive win for us and, uh, and for helping young, young women escape uh, various forms of violence. So uh, it just immediately made me think of that. So that's something that uh, I'm very proud of here at Covenant House. Well, you should be. I mean, and I think women face a really unique set of circumstances and multiple and compounding and very specific exclusions and very specific, you know, policy breakdowns and, and violations of rights. Well, and now I want to say, how is it that we got to this point that a developed country like Canada can have such a disturbing amount of homelessness? Mm -hmm. Well, I touched on it earlier. I mean, I think really that it, it came down to, you know, I say homelessness is a product of uh, poverty and policy. And, you know, the austerity agenda from the 90s, whether it's, you know, or the 80s and 90s, whether it's Reaganomics and Thatcherism or uh, the Canadian version uh, that began in the Mulroney government of the 80s and accelerated through the Kretchen Martin governments of the, of the 90s, uh, that really generated modern mass homelessness. Right. And um, that that really got us, you know, got me thinking about, well, how do we keep that from happening again? How do we ultimately to end homelessness? You know, our theory is you need to, you know, you need to give communities that operating system on ending homelessness, show how communities can work together to solve it. You need to make sure there's a highly trained uh, workforce, but you need to change those provincial, those municipal, provincial and federal policies that create it sustain it or accelerate it. And, you know, that is everything from zoning at a municipal background, in a municipal level that prevents the construction of new affordable housing or adds cost to it, to, you know, child intervention systems at a provincial level who project, it's like a super highway into homelessness for vulnerable kids, um, or it's federal housing policy, you know, federal funding or provincial funding. So, uh, you need to reverse those policy choices um, if we're going to have any hope of, of, of ending homelessness in this country. Well, as you mentioned uh, some of these, these points, uh, I had read on your website that uh, uh, investors, just investors between, was it the five-year period uh, starting in 2011, they, uh, they bought up over 320,000 affordable mm -hmm. housing units for development. It was just blew my mind, you know, it's just how much was lost. Well, and you're in BC, as I think there's a great statistic from the BC Nonprofit Housing Association that said for every one unit of affordable housing that's built, 15 are lost. Right? And so, you know, uh, I think the first principle here is if you're in a hole, stop digging. Yeah. You know? that, that's a, that'll be my big takeaway today, I think. That's, a, <laughs> that's so profound. <laughs> Well, looking at uh, the federal government, in 2017, they introduced a national housing strategy, and in 2019, the government passed the National Housing Strategy Act. In the National Housing Strategy Act, they created the National Housing Council, of which you're co-chair, and the council is mandated to advise the minister on improving strategy. How is the national housing strategy doing, and how can it be improved? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, so there, you know, I've I've been kicking around politics and policy for a very long time, and one of the things I've learned is that there's no perfect policy, there's no perfect legislation, there's no perfect policy, uh, and so I, you know, one of the things that I think is quite smart about the way the national housing strategy is developed and the national housing strategy act is written, it's 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 built to improve. 
right? So, you know, the, the government in, was elected in 2015 and had some thoughts on what a national housing strategy would look like. They introduced, they developed a number of different programs, co-investment funds, Canada Housing Benefit, those things introduced, you know, reaching home, you know, was a change from the old homelessness partnering strategy and expanded. Um, you know, all of those things were came into place in, in 2017. And then in 2019, they introduced the National Housing Strategy Act, which introduced uh, right to housing in Canada, which is key. And then subsequent to that, made commitments to uh, ending chronic homelessness, for example, in Speech on the Throne or addressing homelessness for veterans. So there's a lot of things that have, that have changed, right? So I think, you know, we're at a point now where you got to look at the housing strategy and say, okay, here's where we're at today. How can we make this work better? And we've learned a lot over the last five years on what's what's working, what's not. I think my observation, you know, personally, is that there's there's a few key challenges with the national housing strategy. First is the, what we just talked about financialization. Um, you know, that's three hundred twenty thousand that were lost in that year, uh, in that that five year period. Um, that has gone on for twenty years, thirty years. Right? And so just imagine how many units have been lost in that period. So the first thing that the housing strategy has to do is arrest the loss of housing, not just in the private market, but also community housing. Right? We're, we're actually losing social housing in Canada uh, today. Right? So we have to be very careful not to lose that. So number one, number one you know, you're in a hole, stop digging. Um, the housing strategy can't possibly be successful. Like you can't possibly build enough units uh, to replace everything that that is being lost. So you got to think really hard about how are we going to stop that loss. First of all, second of all, uh, it's obviously not quite ambitious enough. Like they're aiming to produce 125, 130,000 units over 10 years to give you a sense of scale. The province of British Columbia is planning to do the same in BC. Right, so the the scale of BC's ambition is great, but the scale of the ambition nationally has to be higher to just deal with the deficit that we're in. Third thing is there is a very clear challenge in the type of housing that's being developed. So the vast majority of the housing in the national housing strategy is not getting to the people who need it the most. So it's providing very shallow subsidy relative to market. So, in, you know, I think we need to, uh, the housing strategy and the investments in the housing strategy need to be much more targeted to those in the greatest need. Right now, the affordable housing that's being produced is not affordable. The affordable housing that's being produced is not affordable to the, anybody living on, living in, um, on welfare or disability benefits. Uh, and so if you look where the federal investment should go, I would argue spend more on fewer units, better targeted, and you'll get a better result. But we need to, you know, obviously build more, but build more that is geared to income, not relative to market. Um, and then I think you see a an obvious, like a huge, massive elephant in the room gap in the national housing strategy is the lack of an urban, urban, rural, and northern indigenous housing strategy. Uh, and that, when you look at just how disproportionate that the impact of homelessness and housing need is on indigenous peoples, the vast majority of which live in urban, rural, and northern settings, 
um, is really problematic. So an earned strategy would be uh, a really key point. And I guess the, the last thing is I think there's two urgent needs that are emerging today. One is uh, I think we need to look at uh, expanding and refocusing the Canada housing benefit. Um, the vast majority of people in core housing need are in and out quickly within less than five years. Most people in housing need are in housing and they just can't afford it. Uh, I think it, we should be looking very hard at expanding, dramatically expanding the Canada housing benefit as a way of slowing this inflation-related wave of new homelessness. I think that's going to be absolutely essential, and that could alleviate, that could slow or stop the growth of new homelessness and, in fact, accelerate the reduction in homelessness. There's a program in the United States called the HUD-VASH voucher system. It's for veterans. The Americans have cut veteran homelessness in half by providing a rent supplement and a uh, and wraparound housing for supports. And uh, to give you a sense of how big that is, a veteran homelessness in the United States today is about the same size as all homelessness in Canada. Right? So they've, uh, you know, on any given night, there's about 40,000 veterans in the United States that are homeless. On any given night, it's about 35,000 people in Canada. You know, you account for some errors and some growth and, you know, estimates, and it's pretty close. Like, and that's just the veteran population alone in, in, the, in United the U.S., States. Yeah. in the United States, yeah. right? I'm not surprised. Having lived in the States, I, I remember seeing a lot of, yeah, of homeless for sure. veterans. Yeah. And the only other, you know, the other thing that, that again, I'm, I'm pushing the federal government to do, um, wearing my Canadian Lions hat for sure, is uh, a federal response to encampments. There is, um, you know, communities and cities are facing very significant pressures. Um, we're seeing it play out. Encampments are incredibly dangerous uh, for the people living in them. Um, and I think need it, and, and cities are really struggling to figure out what, what to do. Um, but I think there is a response that, you know, looks a little like the HUD-BASH voucher model, plus some, uh, you know, additional funding where the federal government could play a really important and meaningful role in helping cities and getting people out of encampments quickly. So to make a, to make a short question, long answer, <laughs> that's where I think we are. Wow. Are you are you hopeful that it, it this can come to fruition, that the government will take pages out of other people's books, such as the states, and make this happen? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, there's been, uh, you know, in the last federal budget, for example, there was $65 million allocated for a veteran program that is being developed and modeled on after that HUD-BASH voucher program, but it just hasn't been launched yet. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. Um you know, I think, uh, you know, it's easy for us to stand back and, you know, throw rocks at the national housing strategy. And Lord knows I do plenty of that myself. But, uh, you know, we are miles ahead of where we were in 2015, right? There's $70 billion. We can argue about that number. We can argue about how much it's being used, how well it's being used. But there's federal leadership on housing, and and it has a way to, you know, get even better. We've got a legislative right to housing, and we've got communities around the country that are, despite this COVID-related wave or this inflation-related wave of homelessness, are making progress. Oh, well, that's good to hear. I like ending that question on a positive note. So. Uh, <laughs> 
And I want to talk a bit about uh, another organization uh, that you're involved with. Uh, you're also the campaign chair for Vote Housing. Could you tell us a little bit about Vote Housing? Yeah, Vote Housing. Uh, so Vote Housing came from a, a realization, and I'd love to take credit for it, but I can't. I mean, it's with a group of our, our peers, the Co-op Housing Federation of Canada, um, the uh, Canadian Housing and Renewal Association, Canadian Lived Experience Leadership Network, and some other partners around the country, like the British Columbia, the Co-op Housing Federation of BC, and BC Nonprofit Housing, and some other partners around the country. But I think there was this realization that... You know, we have to reverse the policies that created homelessness. But to do that, you, you need to build the political power of the movement, right? You need to build the political power of people experiencing homelessness and those that care about them uh, in order to move the politics, in order to move the policy, right? And, I mean, governments will do what they can get away with, frankly, Right. And, you know, if you can cut housing investment and you can cut income supports and nobody loses their seat as a result of it in the House of Commons or in the legislature in B.C., then it's easier for them to do. The flip side is there's no incentive to do the right thing because there's not necessarily a lot of votes in it. So vote housing comes from this belief that in order to end homelessness, in order to protect people experiencing homelessness uh, and housing need in order to reverse these challenges you need to reverse the policies that created them and need to build political power in order to achieve that and um, when we ran a poll as part of vote housing and that poll uh, run by nanos research found something that i thought was really interesting and that 36 percent of canadians either have experienced homelessness themselves, about 1.6 million uh 5 percent of that's 36 um 20% know someone who's experienced homelessness, and 11% have a family member, somebody close who's experienced homelessness. So that that is a massive group of people. Now imagine if those folks were all mobilized to vote housing, and that's the goal, right? Is to, you know, in many ways have the equivalent of basically create a, a quote unquote political party for housing. Right, and make sure to participate in the democratic process in a nonpartisan way, but you know, ultimately to demonstrate to anybody who wants elected office in the country, be it municipal, provincial, or federal, that the road to the road to that is you need to address housing, just like in many places now you need to address climate change. Right, that's because you know if you've changed public opinion, you've driven that political process. All that said, then, what would you, in your opinion, what does what would a win look like? Uh, to me, to me, a win is um, every every federal provincial uh, political party uh, has housing um, housing and ending homelessness in their platform. Doesn't even have to be perfect, right? But they all agree that we need to end homelessness and we need to address housing need for those in the greatest need in the country, right? And that they, they will support the right to housing. Those are, I think those are really key. Uh, those are wins uh, for me. Now, uh, you know, I'm, my, my dream for vote housing is we enter the next federal election with an army of supporters 
uh, and a campaign organization in most, if not all, ridings across the country. And in the next election, you see 200,000 people all signed up to be part of this campaign, all writing their MPs and candidates and MLAs, all writing, all being uh, in federal election, all their MPs or MP candidates, right? Um, and you see lawn signs along with candidate signs all across the country saying, I'm voting housing. And when the candidates knock on the doors in the next federal election, every one of them is going to hear, okay, what's your what's your platform on housing? I'm making my choice on candidate based on who has the best platform. Right. Well, that kind of ties into my next question about vote housing. You know, it is it's a national campaign. And nonetheless, I was wondering if you have any, well, you've spoken to some of these things about uh, to our listeners uh, about mm -hmm. insights uh, on things that they should consider. Are there anything? Are there any other things that you would like to share when they about or for our listeners when they go to the polls? Mm -hmm. You know, for all levels of government you know, when they're voting. Well, I, I think you know you you know I would um, I, well I say this about ending homelessness too. There's there's a few things you can do. You know you can give. You can volunteer. You can tell a friend. You know, you can give to candidates of your choice who uh, are are you know have good housing platforms. Um, you can volunteer with those campaigns. You can volunteer with vote housing. Um, you can tell a friend. I mean, the the biggest thing you know we see in campaigns, whether it's anywhere you know in the Western world, is this new world of relational campaigning. People are thinking about they're more organizing around issues and they're things that they feel very strongly about and reaching into their own networks of influence, their own networks of people. And I think, you know, that is a very powerful way to organize uh, and mobilize. But the big thing is just demanding of your candidates. So how are you going to end homelessness? How can you, you know, address the housing need of uh, Canadians who are experiencing, you know, extreme housing vulnerability. There's a lot of people who, it's one thing for you and I to not be able to afford a bigger house, you know, to buy a bigger house or, you know, a million dollar house or whatever, you know, but it's quite another for those that uh, are risking their lives for the lack of housing. Like there's, there's people who are, are going to die on the streets of our country for no other reason than they don't have a place to live. And we need to make sure that's front and center. Oh, thanks for sharing that. Um, and as we bring our time to a close, are, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Anything that you would like to uh, get across to them before we let you go? Well, I think it's easy. You know, we spend a lot of time highlighting things that need need improving and the, sort of the challenges that we have. But uh, I, I'm I'm absolutely, resolutely, one thousand percent sure that homelessness can end, and that's because I'm seeing it happening. Despite this wave of new homelessness, you know, we're working with eight cities now that have achieved a minimum uh, of ten percent reduction in chronic homelessness. The city of Ottawa, for example, just achieved a, a nineteen percent reduction in chronic homelessness. Uh, St. Thomas Elgin is at 
town, a small town and a group, um, a municipality in, in Ontario, they've reduced chronic homelessness 20%. And there's other other communities like that. Medicine Hat in Alberta has achieved functional zero on veteran on chronic homelessness. London, Ontario has ended veteran homelessness. There are other communities that I know have achieved reductions and are just going through a verification progress process and others that will very soon be announced as ending veteran or chronic homelessness. And so, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with the, the, the message that homelessness is solvable. It's not some intractable problem we're just resigned to accept. This is a solvable problem, and there's a path. There's a path to get there. Well, Tim, thank you so much for, for sharing your thoughts and insights on this. Uh, I know it's been fascinating for me, and I'm sure it has been for our listeners. And there are so many tools now in the toolbox, and some of which you've helped create. So thank you for that. And uh, it's not a utopian dream. It's doable. So again, thank you for that. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to be and honored to be part of an organization that's uh, trying uh, to get us to that finish line so well thank and, you and thank you to you and thank you to covenant house and your donors and volunteers and supporters and staff like i mean that's those are those are the folks that are doing the work and uh, you know with your help we'll get there yeah thank you again so much and that brings us to the end of the episode of under one roof i'd like to thank my guest tim richter for joining me if you have feedback on today's episode or suggestions for further topics, please email us at publicaffairs at covenanthousebc.org. Until next time, I'm Mark Savard. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Under One Roof, a Covenant House Vancouver production. If you have questions or comments about today's episode, please email us at publicaffairs at covenanthousebc.org. For more information on Covenant House Vancouver or to make a donation, please visit our website at www.covenanthousebc.org. Until next time, thanks for listening.